Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, the 11th chapter, beginning at the 17th verse through the 24th. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, was grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you were, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I should, might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not be proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, providing you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For you, if, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the covenant olive tree, how much more would these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we want so much to be humbled by this text. It's not you who supports the root. The root supports you. Don't boast over the branches. Don't be arrogant. Don't be puffed up. If he did not spare them, he won't spare you. They were broken off for unbelief. You stand fast only by humble, childlike faith. Oh God, humble your people under this word, I pray. And out of our lowliness, our broken-hearted contrition, may we be bold and lion-hearted and courageous in love. Lord, make a beautiful people, I pray. A lowly people ready to lay down their lives. For the sake of love, not like suicide bombers who kill themselves in order to kill, but who lay down their lives to save. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last two messages, we've been focusing on reasons that Paul gives for why we should be humble and not be proud and puffed up over the broken off branches. Now, let me give it a little background about this picture of the tree. Uh, the situation in Romans 11 is that he's dealing with Israel, who were the covenant people for all those thousands of years, and now the Messiah has come, Jesus Christ, and he's offered himself as the Savior and the Lord of his own Jewish people, and by and large has been rejected. So the tree represents Israel, the covenant people, and the root is 
the covenant made with Abraham, all the promises flowing up through this tree are, are promises that are going to be valid for the people of God. And then unbelief results in the breaking off of natural branches. That's Israel. Not all, but most. And the grafting in by faith alone in the Messiah, Gentiles into the covenant root. And now we Gentiles, by trusting in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, partake in the promises made to Abraham of life and salvation and hope and joy and everything that was destined for the people of God is now ours by faith alone in Jesus. And the danger of this teaching is that it might result in Gentiles boasting over the the broken off branches. Paul is very concerned about that. Verse 19. Romans 11, 19. Then you will say, you Gentiles will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Now, Paul says in response to that, that is true. And what we've seen now for two weeks is that what ought to be a pride Shattering, gratitude, raising, humility, producing truth is about to make us proud and arrogant, boastful, elevating ourselves up over unbelieving Jewish people. And he sees that coming and he's been now and we've been now lingering over this issue. I I spent three weeks on reasons not to be proud because I just think it's the worst thing we face. It's way worse than adultery. Lust, stealing. All sins flow from this one. Pride. So I don't apologize for lingering over these reasons. We've seen two. So far, we see a third one today. Number one, two weeks ago, verse 18. Remember, you Gentiles, and this is Bethlehem by and large. I know there are Jewish people among us, but that's good. And I'm saying, you Gentiles, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Salvation is from the Jews. Never forget it, Gentiles. That's the argument. You are saved by being connected to a Jewish promise. How dare you exalt yourself in any way by way of pride over the Jewish people? How dare you produce anti-Semitism in any form, verbal or active? Here was the second reason, verse 21. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That was last Sunday's message. So we don't need to go into that further. Now, here's the new argument. Today's message. The new argument is don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't be puffed up over the broken off branches because they were broken off because of unbelief alone. And therefore, you stand not by virtue of your ethnicity or any qualification in yourself, but by childlike reliance on another alone. Faith alone. Let's read it. 
We'll start at verse 19 and then read into verse 20. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that we might be grafted in. That is true. And now here comes his argument. Why that should not produce pride. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Underline unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear or stand in awe. Literally, it's fear, stand in awe, tremble at the fact that you're standing in this root, this Abrahamic promise that you get any participation in it at all is by faith alone. So in Paul's mind, there must be something about faith that rules out boasting. That's what I want to work on for the next while. That's all I want to talk about this morning is why is it that faith produces humility and cancels out boasting? That's the key question for this morning's message. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has contrasted boasting and faith. Let's go back to chapter three, verse twenty seven. Go there with me or just listen. Romans 3.27, he has just said that God justifies, declares righteous, those who have faith in Jesus, which is stunning. Just trust Jesus and God declares you righteous. That's amazing. And then he says, verse 27, what then becomes of our boasting? Answer, it is excluded. Why? By what kind of law? Works? A law of works? No. A law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So in Paul's mind, there is something about this wonderful thing called faith that excludes boasting. And all of its fruits of anti-Semitism and racism and ethnocentricity. So I have three questions. Number one, where does it come from? Where does faith come from? Second, what is it? And three, how do we maintain it? So those three questions about this amazing reality called faith. Where does it come from? What is it? How do you maintain it? The third question is next week's sermon. I want to dwell on This huge issue of how do you get it? How do you keep it? Because this text says, keep yourself, keep yourself in the kindness of God. We need to work on that because I think a lot of Christians have the notion that faith is kind of an automatic thing. Just kind of is there or not there or nothing you can really do to keep it as though you don't have to keep it. So there's nothing. Well, if I keep going, I'll talk about next week's sermon. So we got two questions this morning. Where does it come from and what is it? First, where does faith come from? Faith is an act or an experience of your own soul. It's not done for you. It is an experience or an act of your own heart or soul. So the first answer is it comes from you. But when I ask the question, where does it come from? I'm I'm fishing 
for why it is that Paul thinks it rules out boasting. I'm trying to get at the root, the deepest thing that he can say about the origin of faith, as well as in a moment the nature of faith, that rules out boasting. And I think the deepest answer is that faith is a gift of God. What I mean by that is this. Ephesians 2.8, it was given to you to have faith. It goes like this. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. Everybody in this room, in that room, is a sinner which means in the Bible that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.5, and that we are blind, 2 Corinthians 4.4. That's a pretty hopeless condition. And the only reason that anybody escapes that condition is the grace of God. And so when you ask me, or if God were to ask me at the judgment day as I stand at the gate of heaven or hell, and I, I say, or he asks me, why did you believe and your brother didn't, or your friend didn't, or your acquaintance didn't? The right answer is not going to be, I was smarter or I was more spiritual, or I had more savvy about maximizing eternity, the, an- the right answer is going to be, I was once blind, and because of grace I now see. I was once dead, and because of grace I now am alive. I was once unable to see anything be- beautiful in Christ or the cross, and one day My eyes were open and I saw the cross as absolutely essential to my life. And how could I not trust him? So I just want to say in brief answer to the first question, where does faith come from? It comes ultimately from God, which is why it cancels out boasting. Listen to this amazing principle from 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. In Paul's mind, the principle of a free gift being received is that you don't boast in it. If you begin to boast in having received a gift, you're calling attention to your desert of the gift. And if you deserve a gift, it's not a gift. It's a wage. The Bible is real clear on the difference between wages and gifts. Romans 6, 23 The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. You see the difference between wages and gift? You want to deserve? Go ahead. Deserve. If you deserve, you get wages. Wages, death. If you want a gift, trust. And you get a gift, life. Second question. What is faith? What is it that's connecting us now? Everything hangs on this. Here's a tree. The root is a covenant, a promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all of his true posterity, 
And the true posterity are those who have the faith of Abraham. And the faith of Abraham is the faith in the Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah. And therefore, everyone who trusts in Jesus, trusts in Jesus, is in here, benefiting from all the promises ever made. And we're in here by one thing alone. Faith. What is it? What is it? I want to say, first, that faith has objective content. It's not faith in general, like the power of positive thinking. There's a lot of people who will talk about faith in the secular world. If you have faith, you can make it in life. Just meaning, if you approach a situation and believe in yourself and believe in the situation and are positive and cultivate a spirit of positiveness in the company, you prosper. That's not what we're talking about. That's probably true. You prosper in this world like that. But if you're interested in eternity and not just a vapor's breath of life here, then then you better think, what what is this faith? I want to belong to this tree because it lasts forever. The first thing is that it has content unlike the power of positive thinking. Romans 10.9, the chapter before this one. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, there's a fact. God raised Jesus from the dead. If you believe that, you will be saved. This is not a contentless faith. It's got content. It's got Facts in it. Or here's another important verse in that regard. Second Thessalonians 1.10. Paul says, Christ is coming back to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all those who have believed. There's faith. Because our testimony to you was believed. What do you believe in order to become a Christian? The testimony of the apostles. A testimony. Paul's testimony. I just read it in Acts 22 yesterday morning. I saw the Lord risen. I heard what his will was. I was called. Paul saw. He heard. He testifies. And he wrote 13 of our letters in the New Testament. And you can read his testimony. And when you read and faith rises to say yes to that testimony, you will be saved. It's got content. I want to recommend a book. J. Gresham Machen, What is Faith? So uh, I've told the bookstore, guys, get this book. So in a few weeks, maybe you'll see a pile of them in there. and You can get one. It's 80 years old. Most good books are at least 300 years old, but this one is only 80 years old. Machen says, the Bible certainly tells us that faith involves a person as its object. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is impossible to have faith in a person without having knowledge of the person. 
You talk all you want about, I trust my wife, or I trust my friend, or I trust my dad. And I promise you, if you don't know anything about your dad, your brother, your wife, that sentence honors them not at all. Because it's an absolute leap in the dark. I don't have any evidences that my wife is faithful. I don't have any evidences that her character is good. I don't have any evidences that she keeps her promises. I'm just choosing in the dark to say, I believe she's trustworthy. Well, that doesn't honor her. you got to know something about the people you trust. If your trust is going to be an honor to them, and therefore faith has content. Please, in this church or whatever church you belong to, don't play off doctrine against relationship with Jesus. You've got to know Jesus. You've got to be able to say some things about him. Or it's no honor to him if he's just a, a vague, amorphous blob out there under the word J-E-S-U-S, and you say you trust him, that doesn't bring any glory to him at all and is not real faith. He's got to have some contours. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that we see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And we see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's got a face. See it in the Bible. Know it. He's got meaning. Second thing I want to say after pointing out that faith has content is that the devil knows that and believes it and is not saved. James 2.19 You believe that God is one. That's a good fact. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the second thing to say about faith is you must have facts in your faith in order to be saved. But having facts doesn't save anybody. That's the second thing that has to be said. So what are you what are you saying? I mean, you just told us. Facts are important. Believe that Jesus raised from the dead. That's important. And now you're telling us that you can do that. And you'd just be a devil, maybe. And that's true. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying beyond awareness of facts and assent to facts and agreement to facts, which is absolutely essential, there must be trust. Trust. You must trust Jesus. You must trust God, his Father, Now, trust, trusting a person is uh, an ambiguous thing. If you ask me, do I trust Noel, who's sitting here, my wife, I'm going to say yes. That's the right answer, right? But it's an ambiguous answer because it really doesn't have a lot of meaning until I ask you about what you mean. I have to say, trust her to do what? Sing bass? Jump over a building? Not poison me? Not sleep with another man? Answer? 
No, no, yes, yes. I don't trust Noel to sing bass. I don't trust Noel to jump over a building. I do trust her not to poison me. And I do trust her not to sleep with another man. You see how ambiguous this thing is? You've got to ask when you say, I trust you, Jesus. Somebody should ask you, for what? Perfect health all the time? We really got to get specific about this because we're just playing games until we get down to brass tacks and say, what do you trust your wife for? What do you trust Jesus for? And here's the reason this is so important. Because what you trust a person for shapes and determines the very nature of the trust. It does. So... I want to spend the rest of our time asking, what do we trust Jesus for? What must we trust Jesus for to be saved, to be in the tree and not to boast? What is it that we trust Jesus for that in the end will cancel out all boasting and keep us in the tree so that we are saved? I've got five answers to that question. Number one, we must trust him for justification. Galatians 2.16. So we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified in Christ and not by works of the law. One of the things you have to believe Jesus for is that he will be the basis of my right standing with God. And he alone will be the basis of my right standing with God. This is huge. We spent years on this. Chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 are all about this. This glorious gospel of justification by faith. You must come to Jesus and say to him, All right, I have tried and I'm still trying to be a good person. And I have failed and I will always fail. And even if I succeed, 99% God is 100% God and I will not make it into heaven. I must have a righteousness that is not my own. And I must have forgiveness for all of this junk in my life. And you are my only hope. And I trust you as the basis of that righteousness and the basis of that forgiveness and you alone. you got to believe that. you got to trust him for that. And it's really good news. That's not a new law. That's freedom from law. That's number one. Number two, we trust him for eternal life. 1 Timothy 1.16 1 Timothy 1 Verse 16, Jesus Christ displayed his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Believe in him for eternal life. What do you believe him for? I don't believe in my wife for eternal life. I do not trust Noel to give me eternal life. Oh, but I believe in Jesus for eternal life. I want to live. I don't want to go to hell. And those are the only two options. Yes, if Jesus does not come back for a while, we will be eaten by the worms. But I promise you, that is not the final destiny of the soul. 
We will go to one place or the other. And Jesus offers us eternal, everlasting life. And says, believe me. And I'll give it to you. We've got to trust him for that. Number three. We must trust him for everlasting kindness. All I'm doing with this third point is defining the life of the second point. Because I know that for a lot of people, the phrase eternal life really doesn't sound all that positive. As a little child, it didn't sound positive to me. It scared me. It sounded really like endless boredom, frankly. Because I was bored pretty much at church. And I thought uh, streets of gold and silver were not the kind of streets I wanted. Frankly, I wanted grass and a football. And so I know that the, the phrase eternal life isn't all that exciting to a lot of people. We've got to begin to fill it up with something beautiful. And one of the words, and I, I choose the word kindness here. I could have chosen many words, but kindness is in the text. And that's why I chose it. It says continue in his kind. Verse 22, note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who've fallen because of unbelief, but kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. So I want to say that as we enter into everlasting life, this infinite Infinite God who created grass and gold will be so kind to you that whatever it takes to make your eternity happy, that's what he'll do. And you got to trust him for that. you got to trust him for that. Number four. We trust in Jesus and we must trust in Jesus. We must trust in Jesus that. In him, God will work everything together for our good. Romans 8.32 is the biblical foundation of his kindness toward us and his doing everything good to us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Now notice the logic of the verse. He didn't spare his own son. That means he paid a huge Huge price for our salvation. And he draws out of that this inference. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Grass, footballs. Someday. When I'm ready not to make idols out of them, but rather make them instruments of worship. I really believe heaven is going to be an absolute blast. And absolute is an important word there. Blast is not a very good word for heaven. But absolute blast is. And every joy that has any element of holiness and goodness in it in this life will not only be preserved, but multiplied 10,000-fold for children, men, women, forever and ever. It will not be boring, I promise you. 
And in this life, no, he will not heal every disease and he will not rescue us from physical death. And there will be many trials. Oh, last night we prayed with people in such misery, such misery, marital misery and health misery. I'm just so aware in a room like this that for me to say God will work all things together for your good is hard to believe. I know that. We've got to believe it. We've got to believe it. Because if you don't believe it, you're saying either he's not God or he's not good. You say those two things, you cancel yourself out of the kingdom. He's God and he's good. Yes, there's much pain that comes into our lives, but he's going to take it all and bring us in and through it for our everlasting good. And you can't figure that out. You just have to believe him with tears running down your face. That's the fourth thing that faith is. Finally, number five. And this is the most essential thing because it's in all the others. We have to believe that in the kindness of God and in eternal life and in justification and in his working everything together for good, The ultimate essential good of the gospel is God himself. And the ultimate thing for which we believe him is that he will be for us an all-satisfying treasure. It amazes me. It amazes me about my own life and it amazes me about churches that we can preach the gospel and not think about what makes it good news ultimately. We use words like forgiveness of sins or justification or salvation or reconciliation or propitiation or atonement or ransom. None of those is the end point that makes salvation good news. Why do you want to be forgiven? Because it feels good not to be guilty or to escape hell? Those are both true and desirable. But that's not what makes it good news. What makes forgiveness good news is that it gets out of the way everything that keeps you from enjoying God. And if you say, well, I hadn't even thought about enjoying God, you may not be a Christian. Because the only ultimate joy that fully satisfies is God. Everything Jesus did on the cross, everything he did in rising from the dead, everything he did by way of illustrating his character in doing miracles and loving people and getting his arms around kids and lepers was to show us that in the end, our satisfaction is going to come from being near him, knowing him, loving him, delighting in him. 
He is the end of the gospel. If we don't penetrate through eternal life and penetrate through kindness and penetrate through justification and penetrate through Romans 8.28 to Him, how is He honored? So my fifth point about what we trust Jesus for is we trust Him to be a treasure to us that is infinite and all satisfying. So, how does it eliminate pride? That's where we've been going, remember? I've lost you perhaps, but let's go back. It all, it all began with, okay, there are three reasons in this text for why pride, anti-Semitism, Boasting, racism, ethnocentrism should be excluded from the Christian life. Three reasons. It's not you who supports the root. The root supports you, so don't be proud. If he didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And now today's point is they were broken off because of unbelief. You stand fast only by faith. What is it so that we can see why it cancels out boasting? And now I've done my best. But we need to ask, so why does all of that that you just described rule out boasting? Maybe I could close with just a picture. If the essence of all of those things we trust Jesus for is himself as the satisfaction of our souls in our desperate need as a sinner, Have you ever seen a man or conceived of a man dying of thirst in the desert, found by a rescue party with a swollen tongue, cradled in an arm with a canteen of cool, clean, life-giving water put to his lips, who as he drinks cuts his eyes up to his rescuer and says, I'm somebody for enjoying this, aren't I? You'll never see that. Not in a million years. Let's pray. Father, please, there's only one ultimate escape from boasting. And that is... The broken-hearted enjoyment of the God of grace. So break our hearts for our sin. And grant everyone in this room to taste grace. To taste Christ, the God of grace. 